All right, everyone, thank you so much for listening to the first episode of the Houndstein Center's new podcast series, Off the Stage. My name is Maddie Miller, and I'm the media specialist for the Houndstein Center. Today, I am joined by Hal Brands. Uh, Hal is currently the Kissinger Distinguished Professor of Global Affairs at Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies, a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and a columnist at Bloomberg Opinion. That was a mouthful, but I hope I got everything right. Um, Hal, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Maddie. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to start out um, this episode today with a few questions from our BOQ, which stands for Bowl of Questions. So for those listening, these are questions that were actually submitted via social media, and Hal is going to pick a few to answer at random. Um, If you who are listening are interested in submitting some questions for our future speakers to answer during the podcast, follow us on social media and be on the lookout for a post asking for submissions. Okay, how you can um, okay, grab Okay, should I do it one at a time or just grab a handful? Yeah, or maybe just grab one, read right. it out loud, and then you can answer it. Here we go. I love the bowl of questions, by the way. Thank this you. Is a, this is a wonderful innovation in podcasting. <laughs> Thank you. Who is your childhood hero? So this, this one is actually a little bit embarrassing because my childhood <laughs> hero has since been disgraced. Okay. And so uh, when I grew up uh, in the late late 80s, I was a big fan of baseball and for, okay. for no particular reason because I grew up in Texas of the Oakland Athletics mm-hmm. in particular. And to, so the two players that I really, really liked were Jose Canseco and okay. Mark McGuire, yeah, both of whom turn out to have been, you know, raging steroid users. Okay, <laughs> uh, and and so you know they they were caught up in the 1990s scandals when the the extent of the steroid epidemic in yeah. baseball be, became known. But there, the, those guys were my heroes when I was yeah. you know five, six, seven years old. Okay, well, hey, that is totally okay. I mean, I feel like sports heroes are pretty popular, but. I guess not everyone can be perfect, so. That's right. That's That's right. right. It's a good lesson. Yes, it is. Okay, how about you do one more question from the BOQ? All right, so question number two from the BOQ is, what does a perfect Saturday look like to you? Yeah, that's a great question. Okay, that's that's a good one. So um, I can, maybe easier to just describe kind of like a a typical Saturday, right? Yes, yeah. And, And so typically what I would do is I try to get up and, and go swimming or running and you know, okay. get the blood flowing uh, a little bit. Maybe do a little bit of work to, to catch up from the week, but not too much. Yeah. I'm really big into uh, breakfast. Breakfast is by far my wow. favorite meal okay. of, of the day. And uh, one of like four things that I can cook adequately <laughs> are breakfast sandwiches. Okay. And wow. so I'll, I'll make myself and whoever else in the family wants one breakfast yeah. sandwiches. Love that. Have, you know, a gallon of coffee. <laughs> okay. Uh, and, and kind of hang out and, and relax a little bit. And then yeah. maybe in the afternoon, if I'm lucky, I can drag one or both of my kids to the golf course for, okay. for a round of golf. So I, yeah. I grew up playing golf. Uh, I am trying to, to pass it on to my kids. There's typically a lot of kicking and screaming when I tell them they're going to play golf, but then when we get out on the course, it's it's a little bit better. They're, they're 11 yeah. and 9, and so they're, okay. they're, they're taking to it gradually. Yeah. Uh, and then come home and have cocktails with my wife and maybe yeah. see some of our friends in the neighborhood, and that would yeah. be a really nice Saturday for oh, me. Oh, I love that. That's perfect. I have to ask, what what's a go-to breakfast sandwich? What's in it? 
Yeah, so typically it would be uh, an everything bagel okay. with a yes. couple of fried eggs okay. and then either sausage or bacon. Yeah. Sometimes I might mix it up with ham or steak, you know, if yeah. we've had steak earlier in the week or something mm-hmm. like that. And then uh, some cheese yeah. and uh, probably some Cholula. I'm okay. a big, big Cholula fan, so they're getting wow. free product placement on yeah, this podcast. Yeah, on this podcast. Wow, that, that sounds really good. I actually had an everything bagel this morning, so I'm You right. can't beat an everything bagel. You can't bagel. beat it. Yeah. yeah, that's so true. Well, great. Thank you for those um, answers to those questions. We're going to transition into some questions geared more towards your life and how you came to be the historian and scholar you are today. So first, let's talk a little bit about your childhood. Um, where did you grow up? What was your family like? What were you interested in? And like, what did you do for fun growing up? So I grew up in Austin, Texas, and I lived there all, all, until I went off to college with the exception of a year that we okay. spent in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, because my dad was working uh, at Vanderbilt University then. And so growing up, I you know had a pretty normal childhood. I spent a lot of my time playing sports. I, I was convinced until I was probably 12 or 13 years old that my professional future was in the NBA and I was okay. going to be a professional basketball <laughs> player, you know, like like most boys. Yeah. Uh, and so that was really my, my passion. Um, but I also got into history, interestingly enough, when I when I was little. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a family business for us. And so my, my dad is a historian. He teaches at the University of, of Texas. And, mm-hmm. and so when I was looking for reading material over the summer, you know, whatever was on the bookshelf was what I would read. And, and it was typically history. And in fact, uh, there was one summer where I was, you know, trying to find odd jobs so I could make money to buy candy or whatever kids do with money. Yeah. And my dad uh, gave me uh, the manuscript of a book he had just written. Mm -hmm. uh, And he said, if you can go through this for every error you find, whether it's a typographical (laughs) error or a factual error, yeah. I'll pay you three bucks. Wow, that's awesome. And so, you know, this this was in 1992 or whatever, so, yeah. you know, three bucks was really worth something back then. Uh-huh. And so I would spend days just going through it and, and find, and I think I did find a handful of errors, and so I, you know, could go to the movies and get popcorn based on that. Yeah, that's <clears throat> awesome. That sounds like a great first job, you know, for you, um, and, and eventually what it grew into. Um, so I saw that you went to Stanford for your undergrad. Um, how did you choose Stanford, and what did you choose to major? So when I was visiting colleges, uh, my senior year in high school, my senior year in high school, yeah, and so I I, I kind of took the shotgun approach to applying to colleges. I applied to probably seven or eight schools, um, most of which were either on the West Coast or on the East Coast. And I I love Texas. I love getting back there, but I very much had the sense that I wanted to try something different. Okay. For college, my sister had gone to college in California, and so the the West Coast was on my radar screen. Mm-hmm. And I went to visit Stanford in February, I think it was, and it was you know 62 degrees mm-hmm. and a relatively sunny day. Yeah, you know, compared to some of the places on the East Coast where it would have been you know negative five and snowy yeah. at that point. And so it was it was a pretty easy choice. For me and you know 18 year olds don't always make decisions based on the sort of things you would like them to make decisions on but it turned out to be a great decision i, yeah. I, lo- I love stanford it was great. an amazing school uh i made friends that i still keep in touch with uh, and will always keep in touch with there and i ended up kind of finding my way into becoming a, a dual major in history and political science okay just because i was fortunate to take classes with great professors and so yeah. <clears throat> 
at the end of my freshman year, I took a, a political science class that was called Strategy, War, and Politics, I believe. And it was kind of an introduction to the greatest hits of the international security subfield mm-hmm. of political science. And so we studied the origins of World War One and World War Two. Uh, you know, why the atomic bomb was dropped on Japan at the end of World War II, so, so on and so forth. Um, and I was just hooked. And so I, I knew that I wanted to study international security. And then my sophomore year, I took a class. Uh, it was called the United States Since 1945. And it was mm-hmm. taught by a professor named Barton Bernstein, who had been at Stanford for 40 years at that point um, and was really kind of an institution on campus and he was both a wonderful teacher and so he would give these um, just spellbinding lectures on everything from the origins of the Cold War to uh, the impeachment of President Clinton in the 1990s. Uh, But he was also a wonderful mentor and so he spent uh, far more time than he needed to with me outside of class kind of teaching me what it meant to be a historian And, and I was off to the races from there. Yeah. That is awesome. That's so cool. Um, so this is kind of a great lead to our next question. Um, so it seems like from what I've learned about you, even coming to our event tonight, your passions kind of lie in political science, history, foreign affairs. Um, so where did these passions stem from, which you kind of just talked about, and what keeps you captivated by these subjects year after year? Well, there's just so much going on in the world. And so if mm-hmm. you study foreign policy or foreign affairs, it is impossible not to be interested by things that are happening on a daily basis. Now, those things are often tragic. And and so one of the things that I spend a lot of time thinking about these days is the war in Ukraine and what it means for the future of U.S.-Russia relations and the future of the international system and European security and so on and so forth. And it's always important to keep in mind that there is a very human dimension to to these things. People are being maimed and killed on a daily Mm -hmm. basis. right? Uh, And so... But nonetheless, uh, there is a lot of just fascinating material about the causes of war and peace, about what makes for a stable international Mm -hmm. system there. And so one of the things that I enjoy most when I teach is I typically will take the first 30 or 40 minutes of my seminar each week and just kind of ask my students, okay, what's going on in the world Mm -hmm. and how can we make sense of it given the things that we've been talking about in class. And, and it never um, ceases to be interesting for me. I hope it never ceases to be interesting for them. But but often, uh, you mentioned in the introduction that I write a weekly column on foreign policy for Bloomberg. Yeah. That's often where I get the idea to do it, just in kind of talking through things with mm-hmm. my students and, and figuring out you know, where we stand on, on these issues. And the other thing that is I've always been struck by, and this relates it to the question you asked about how I became a history major, there's always some historical dimension to these questions. And so if we're thinking about the war in Ukraine, well, uh, it's helpful to understand the debates about, you know, why the United States decided to expand NATO after the end of the Cold War and Mm -hmm. did that or did that not cause the deterioration in U.S.-Russia relations today. One of the things I'll be talking about this evening is the way in which the history of the Cold War can inform our understanding of the challenges we face from Russia and China yeah. today. And, and so as, as history unfolds, it makes newly relevant 
past history, and, yeah. and that's always been a source of interest for me. Yeah, that's so cool. I've actually never really thought about that idea of how you know history and then our current political um, landscape really mm-hmm. go together. That's a really cool perspective. Um, so you're doing a great job leading into my next questions, actually. <laughs> um, so your profession is, um, like you said, dependent on being up to date with politics and the news. For a lot of people, including myself, um, we sometimes view politics and the news as, you know, confusing or kind of gloomy, polarizing, you know, other feelings with negative connotation. So my question for you is, you know, one, how do you stay positive within your profession? And two, how do you sometimes have to separate your work with life itself in order to catch a break from all the chaos? Those are great questions. Um, Staying positive can be pretty difficult just because a lot of the things that people who study foreign policy look at involve a fair amount of doom and gloom, war and atrocity and and all the bad things that we see in the news every day. I I think that one of the things that uh, perhaps sustains me in in thinking about these questions is the realization that it could always be worse. Mm-hmm. And so one thing that it's easy to lose sight of is that the world that we have all inhabited since 1945 has been the most free, the most democratic, the most stable, the most prosperous world that humanity has ever known. And that is for a lot of reasons, but one of the most important reasons is because of the role that the United States has played in creating a stable liberal international system in which we and other countries can flourish. And so as many terrible things are happening in the world on a day-to-day basis, the world that we inhabit is actually pretty good by historical standards. Mm -hmm. And the task of people who study or make foreign policy, I think, is to figure out how we can ensure that that continues to be the case into the future. The second question I, I think is is in some ways even more challenging because mm-hmm. you know like like you and everybody else I imagine you know I spend a lot of time scrolling uh, you know doom scrolling on my phone yeah. on, on the weekends yep. or whatever and it can uh, be difficult to kind of cut away from your work if what your work involves is essentially following the news mm-hmm. to a certain extent and and so I think you know for me it's just important to have other activities that you can yeah. busy yourself doing. And so I, you know, I mentioned that I like to play golf earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I have an 11 year old and a nine year old, so I try not to disappear for, for too long, but it mm-hmm. provides me with an opportunity to get out and kind of forget about what yeah. I'm doing for a couple of hours, right? Yeah. Or or things like that. And so everybody's just gotta have a, a refuge they can go to. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. That's great advice for even somebody who's looking to maybe go into that field or um, that way, so that's great. Um, so you're an author of eight books, is that correct? Eight? That sounds right. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you're also a columnist, so you must enjoy writing to a certain degree. Was writing a skill you learned over time simply because of your profession, or have you always loved writing and you simply are kind of just lucky that you get to use it in your profession? I, I think both. I'm definitely lucky that I get to use it in my profession, but, but writing is definitely a skill that you learn over time, and it's a skill mm-hmm. that... I and anybody else who writes for a living continue to learn, yeah. right? And, and so um, there's really no substitute for just hard work when it mm-hmm. comes to, to writing. It's a craft that you never perfect. If it ever starts feeling easy, it means mm-hmm. that you're doing it wrong and you're not putting in uh, the work anymore. And, and so I really enjoy writing because writing is how I think. And yeah. so if I'm trying to figure out what I think about a given subject, 
the way that I do that, the way that I organize my thoughts on it is by setting them down on paper. And in yeah. the process of doing that, I, I come to a much sharper realization of what I actually think about a subject mm-hmm. and, and why. And so one of the cool things about writing a weekly column is it forces me to do that yeah. on a regular basis and it forces me to come up with what I think are considered judgments about important mm-hmm. issues in U.S. foreign policy today. So, so it's really um, a lot of fun. It's a privilege in, in that mm-hmm. respect. But it is one of those things, and I, I tell my students this all the time, you know, 90% of writing is revising. Mm-hmm. And so you, you should think of the first draft as, you know, the first of three or four, and most of the value added, most of the insight mm-hmm. and the cool turns of phrase and the things that make good writing fun to read will come in the process of, of hammering that thing into something that's actually readable by the time yeah. you're done with it. That's awesome. That's cool. I also enjoy writing to a certain degree, so that that's really cool. Um, you... Um, in the beginning, you kind of mentioned um, your dad as a historian um, himself. What is, um, how has your dad impacted your life and your profession, and what's um, your guys' relationship like today with you guys kind of being in similar um, professions? Well, there's, there's always something that, that we can talk about, right? Because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if I'm working on a book project or he's working on a book project or, you know, I'm thinking of trying to make sense of something, um, it's always great to be able to pick up the phone and, and give him a call and, and talk through that. And he's really been, uh, in addition to being just a good dad, a great source of advice and, and counsel mm-hmm. for me as I kind of thought about how to shape my career and, and shape yeah. my, my life. And so I definitely had uh, a leg up, to be candid, because my dad could tell me about you know what, what it meant to be an mm-hmm. academic historian and what some of the challenges were and, yeah. and how he had navigated those challenges at an earlier stage of, of his career. And, uh, you know, I've never stopped turning to him for advice uh, since then. And, and so he, he's a great sounding board on, on issues, professional and, and substantive. And, and I like to think that I uh, occasionally uh, repay the favor, not, mm-hmm. not, that, he, not that he needs it. Uh, and so it's been yeah. just wonderful to have, uh, you know, somebody who uh, shares similar professional and intellectual yeah. interests. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I have two more questions. So my second to last one is, you've done several jobs between graduating and what you currently do now. What has been the hardest job that you've had and why was it such a challenge? Ooh, that is, that is a good question. I, I think the, um, the hardest job that I had might have been kind of the first couple of years of being uh, an assistant professor when I taught at Duke after I got out of grad school. Okay. And the reason it is so hard is that you realize how much work goes into being a competent teacher. Yeah. And so uh, when I was in grad school, I didn't spend a lot of time teaching or TAing. I spent you know, 95% of my time working on my research. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're still expected to do that uh, as, as a professor. But then you also have this responsibility dropped on you to teach three or four, whatever the number of classes is per year. And the first time you do it, the burden of that just feels crushing because you've got to develop lectures or figure out how you're going to lead the seminars. you got to figure out how you're going to engage students who are interested in the issues but maybe don't have huge amounts of background knowledge. Uh, on the subject, uh, and you're doing all that while adapting to a new professional environment, adapting to a new city, uh, in, in, in my case, when I moved to, to Durham. And so that, uh, looking back on that, that was really challenging. It was challenging in a good way, and I, and I think yeah. I picked up habits and knowledge there that continue to serve me 
well, but it, it definitely didn't feel easy at the time. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, so last question, and it's kind of just more of a broad question, but if you had to give advice to somebody who wanted to kind of go into your field, this histor- history, political science, foreign affairs field, what advice would you give to somebody um, looking towards that career path or are in it and struggling or whatnot? I mean, maybe, maybe a couple things. The first is yeah. just never stop reading and, and writing, right? Yeah. And so re- reading is how you will develop knowledge mm-hmm. on a particular subject. And if you can write well, if you can express complex ideas in a pithy fashion, mm-hmm. uh, you will never want for work. That is an incredibly valuable skill mm-hmm. in the foreign policy world, in the academic world, in the business world, and in whatever world you're going to go into. And so yeah. I just literally cannot emphasize that enough. And so sort of developing those basic skills is critical. The other uh, thing I would say is, you know, learn a lot about a particular thing, right? Okay. And so it's it's fun to be a generalist, mm-hmm. but when you're breaking into the field, it's really helpful if you can say, I know a lot about 5G telecommunications, right? I know a lot about Latin America or, okay. or whatever, mm-hmm. because what you'll be trying to do at an early stage of your career is establish credibility. Mm-hmm. And it's easier to establish credibility in a relatively well-defined field than yeah. in saying, I'm an expert on foreign policy at the age mm-hmm. of 23, where you, you may be an expert in foreign policy, but people won't believe you mm-hmm. uh, when you say that. And then the, the last thing I'll say is just bear in mind that the hardest job you'll ever get is your first job. Every job after that is easier to get, right? Yeah. And so just getting your foot in the door is difficult when you don't have experience, when you don't have connections. But but keep at it because it only it only takes you know one firm or one boss saying yes. It doesn't matter how many say no. Yeah. And then once you have your foot on the ladder, the, the next steps will be easier because you'll develop more expertise, you'll develop more awareness, you'll develop more contacts professionally and, and socially. And so you'll get to a point where people start just coming to you and asking mm-hmm. you, would you like to do this job as as opposed to even having to apply for it. And mm-hmm. and so uh, I know the first step can be hard, but the next steps will be easier. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for um, that answer and all the answers to uh, all these questions I asked you on this podcast. It was super awesome. But thank you so much for coming today. It was my pleasure. Thank you for yeah. having me. And thank you for being the guinea pig on our new series of, of this podcast. So that's a- absolutely. I, I hope I did okay. No, I think you did <laughs> great, but thank you. Thank you for listening to Off the Stage Podcast, a series produced by the Hauenstein Center for Presidential Studies at Grand Valley State University. The Hauenstein Center, inspired by Ralph Hauenstein's life of leadership and service, is dedicated to raising a community of ethical, effective leaders for the 21st century. For more information on our center, our Cook Leadership Academy, or our Common Ground Initiative, visit our website at www.gvsu.edu. To keep up with our current events and reoccurring initiatives, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn, all of which can be found linked below. If you liked this episode, consider giving us a review or rating so we can be found by other podcast listeners. Again, thanks for listening to Off the Stage Podcast.